0: All right, we are in Genesis chapter 45 and 46, just three weeks left in the book of Genesis. It's an exciting time. Uh, This portion that we're in is kind of the sweet spot of the culmination of what's been happening uh, in the life of Jacob and Jacob's family and Joseph and Joseph's life. So we are looking forward to what the Lord has for us this morning this was one of those days where I had a really tough time with the title, but I think it'll become apparent as we go through that this title, It Was God, Not You, uh, makes a lot of sense. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45, and let's begin reading, and let's go down to oh, verse 15. Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, "'Please come near to me.' And they came near, and he said, "'I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years,' The famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. And Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hasten and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. Lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold your eyes, that the eyes of my brother Benjamin, excuse me, and behold your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hasten and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Lord, as we consider your word this morning and as we study, would you speak to us? Would you minister to us? Would you reveal to us the things that you want us to know and to understand today. And Lord, there there is a truth, a common truth that we all need to hear, but there is individual things that we each need to, to hear from your spirit and your word this morning. Would you speak to us, Lord? Would you minister to us in our time of need? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may recall from our story last week that... Joseph's brothers had come back to him. They had bowed down to him yet again. They had come back to uh, purchase food because the famine was, of course, raging on. And we now know from the timeline that uh, there were the seven years of plenty in which all the harvest had taken place. And Joseph had been put in charge as second command of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh had given him his signet ring and all sorts of authority and power. And Joseph was ruling and reigning and being a wise steward over all of the land for the Lord had entrusted to Joseph such a great and important responsibility that it wasn't just for a few hundred people or a few thousand. He was entrusted with the lives of millions of people and really, as we were told in the scriptures last week, this famine existed throughout the whole that whole region of the world and people began to come to Egypt from all over the world as the seven years of famine hit, and it became known that down in Egypt, that the Pharaoh had stockpiled all sorts of supplies and grain because of the blessings of the seven years of plenty. And so Jacob's brothers, excuse me, Joseph's brothers had the first time come down and bought some grain, and they went back, and there was this exchange as Joseph was testing them, and he kept Simeon behind, and There was a period of time had passed. We now know it had been about two years start to finish from when the first time they came down till now. So they probably went home, probably had a year or less of uh, supplies, and they came back. And as they came back, remember there was the interchange last week where Judas said to his father, we cannot go back down to Egypt unless we bring our brother Benjamin because of the conversation we had with the man. And, of course, Jacob was uh, forlorn and just torn over the issue of having to allow Benjamin to go. So they sent Benjamin. They came down. They had this incredible meeting with him. They had this dinner in his palace. And then as he sent them away, he put all of their money back in their bags again. And, of course, he planted his special cup uh, in Benjamin's bag. And then he sent the steward out after them to... To sort of accuse them, but of course it was a setup. And then uh, the brothers had said, Hey, whoever's bag you find it in, might as well make him your personal slave or make him a slave of Egypt. And then they uh, found the cup, of course, in Benjamin's bag. And they were horrified that the cup was there. And then remember, Judah came in as they brought them back into Joseph's presence. And there was this harsh accusation. They said, Fine, I will keep this one as a slave. You guys can go. And the brothers were just beside themselves, and Judah came forward. Remember last week as we reviewed the life of Judah, Judah had done a 360. Judah had repented. God had done an incredible work in his life, and we reviewed a lot of Judah's personal history last week. And so Judah had been there making this plea before him, and then he saw Benjamin, his brother, and remember, when Joseph was 17, he was uh, taken captive by his brothers because of the hatred that his brothers had for him. And as he was sent away, they were, they were going to kill him, but then, of course, they sold him in uh, slavery to Egypt uh, through a caravan of traders that were headed down to Egypt. At that point in time, Joseph being 17, Benjamin was three years old. And that's the last time he saw his brother. Now here's his brother standing before him. So adding 22 years to it, his brother would have been about 25 or so. And so now he sees his brother and we saw at the end of chapter 44 that things were building to a climax. And as we enter chapter 45, we see here in verse 1, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out for me. So he was speaking in an Egyptian and he told all of his Egyptian uh, servants to leave the room, clear the room, now, of course, the brothers didn 't understand what he was saying because he was speaking in an Egyptian, and they did not understand the language and it says so no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Now imagine this kind of weeping, this kind of wailing. They had been sent out. The doors were closed. These spaces and these palaces were not tiny rooms. It wasn't like our houses where you can hear right through the walls. This was a palace. And so as he wept aloud, it was so loud and it was so intense that all of the palace could hear it. Pharaoh and his servants could hear that Joseph was weeping and wailing. And his brothers, no doubt, were terrified. Because here is this man, this leader, this ruler, the second in command in Egypt and indeed in all of the world at that time and he's so distressed and he is just visibly shaken and he is uncontrollably weeping and convulsing and he sent all of his servants out. So they must naturally be thinking the worst, right? Because of what's just happened and all of the events that led up to this moment. And then Joseph said to his brothers, and I don't know if you've ever had an emotional moment like this where you wept uncontrollably. But if you have, you know that it's a long time before you can get to the place that you can actually utter words. And with the type of grief and whatever Joseph was feeling at this moment that he had, I'm sure he was a mess. Between the tears and just the the secretions from his nose and his mouth, just... A mess, and his makeup as an Egyptian would have been messed up, and he was literally a mess before his brothers. And then he says to his brothers, "I'm Joseph. Does my father still live?" But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And that word, dismayed, means frightened or terrified. They they couldn't believe what they were hearing, and they they thought maybe this is another trick. Or a scheme of this man who is testing us. And Joseph said to his brothers, verse 4, Please come near to me. So they came near. And no doubt they came near with fear and trembling. And Joseph said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And this is likely the very first time that Benjamin, his brother, is hearing this. Why would his brothers have told him that? They wouldn't have. So for all of these years, for the 25 years of his life, or the last 22 years anyway, since he was three years old, all he knew was his older brother was killed. He was mauled by some wild beast in the wilderness, the same thing that his father knew. And so as he says these words, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. I wonder, and we are not told, how Benjamin felt in that moment as he heard these words. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You see, in that moment, what Joseph is communicating to his brothers is what you did, which was indeed terrible, you sold me into slavery, remember? But God sent me before you to preserve life. In other words, brothers, the thing you did, the horrible thing you did, the evil thing you did was actually done by the hand of God. It's something that God did. It was not just something that God allowed or that God turned around and used for his good. You know, God redeems everything in our lives, doesn't he? Even the, the bad and seemingly random things that happen to us, God doesn't waste it. He still uses it for our good and for his glory. But Joseph is saying here, God actually sent me. And the vehicle and the means and the method that God used to send me was your evil deed of selling me into slavery. Because remember, the reason that they, uh, they, they flipped on Joseph back in that day was because of his dreams, Because of the dreams that God had given him that one day his brothers and his whole family would bow down before him. And of course they thought he was just a silly dreamer. And they thought that he was just being precocious or arrogant in the way that he was dealing with them. Because remember, he was the favored son of his father. Because he was Rachel's firstborn son. And Joseph now opens their eyes and he says... God sent me before you to preserve life. All of Joseph's sorrows for all these years were for a purpose. God used them to preserve his family and to provide the conditions for it to become a nation. Joseph was a victim of men, but God turned it around for his glory. None of it was for loss. In verse six, he says, for these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And a second time he says, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So again, a second time telling them, declaring to them, reassuring them that this was the work of God. And he goes on to say in verse 8, So now, a third time, it was not you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So listen to what Jacob, excuse me, Joseph is saying here. God sent me here, not you. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. That expression means that Pharaoh came to Joseph exclusively for his counsel. And when he says he made me a father, that means he considered my word above his own thoughts, above his own opinions. And so the Pharaoh leaned heavily upon Joseph. In fact, it would tell us that the Pharaoh didn't really do anything in the land of Egypt without Joseph's knowing about it. When you think about such a position, you have to understand that God himself did this. God set up this scenario so that when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh came to the place that he understood that even though he was a pagan and even though the Pharaohs believed they were created in the image of Ra, one of their 2,000 gods, that remember as we reviewed what Pharaoh said, he said, Your God. And Pharaoh began to believe, at least in in part, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Joseph. So it wasn't God, it wasn't you who sent me here, it was God. And God's put me in this place. He's made me a father to Pharaoh. And he's made me Lord of all of his house. I have charge of everything that belongs to Pharaoh. And a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So Joseph stripped away the superficial surface of human activity to reveal the hand of God. Most revealing were his four references to God. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. And it was not you who sent me here, but God. And God has made me Lord of all Egypt. You see, God, 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 God. And listen, this is a good point for us to stop. And to remember something about our lives. There is nothing random that happens in your life. And by the way, it's not fate. It's God. God is in control of our lives just as he was in control of every detail of Joseph's life. And the place you find yourself today and the things that are going on in your life, either God did it or God allowed it. And whether we got here by our own schemes or devices or maybe as in Joseph's case, he could have certainly looked at it and said, I'm here because of what you did to me. And he could have been bitter, but of course he wasn't because he realized God was bigger than men. God was bigger than people's hatred and misbehavior. God was was in control of all of these things. Joseph realized that God ruled his life, not good men, not evil men, not circumstances. God was in control. And because God was in control, all things worked together for good, the truth of Romans 8:28. Joseph understood that everything was determined by God. Donald Gray Barnhouse summarized Joseph's life like this. It wasn't the jealous hatred of his brethren It wasn't the dreams of his youth. It wasn't the passage of a caravan bound for Egypt. It wasn't the preparation of Joseph by a life of adversity. Remember all of the things he went through after he got to Egypt. Remember Potiphar's wife becoming Potiphar's servant, arising to the top in Potiphar's house, and then his wife deceiving him and having him thrown in prison. And then the, the jailer himself seeing God's hand on Joseph and, and Joseph being elevated within the prison. But then the, the, the relationship that he allowed him to have with the, the two men who were Pharaoh's servants who were thrown into jail. And of course, he interpreted their dreams. And it was two years later when finally his dream was recognized uh, by the official. The supernatural gift of interpretation that God had given Joseph. The dreams of Pharaoh himself, which is what got him out of prison. And Joseph's ability to interpret because God gave him the ability. And then the seven years of plenty, the change of the rainfall in a fourth of Africa to bring about the two cycles of abundance and the famine that later came through the failure of the Nile to flood. And it, the Nile floods every year in and, and the Nile River Valley. It becomes like a natural irrigation system. It's called the fertile crescent in that part of the world. And God uh, put his finger on that part of the world and he allowed it to be so incredibly abundant for seven years, but then he he stopped it. And he made there there to be such a severe famine for seven years. And in the, the course of that, the elevation of Joseph to the throne of Egypt... All of these things were brought about naturally by the supernatural work of God, who is the Lord of all, in order to fulfill the counsel of his will. God had a plan. In verse 9, hurry up and go to my father, he says, and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Listen to what he says again. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. Joseph right now is walking in the dream, the fulfillment of the dream that God had given him. And he says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And listen to what he says in verse 40, uh, verse 11, there I will provide for you. The little brother that they tried to kill is now standing before them, declaring the goodness and the glories of God, and saying, "I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come, uh, all that you have, come to poverty. For there are still five years of poverty left. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, and see that it is my mouth that speaks to you." He's still trying to convince them. They're probably standing there with their mouths open. And they're trembling and they can't believe what they're hearing. And Joseph was saying these things to them, saying, Guys, see my mouth moving? This is my mouth. I'm your brother. Hello? Snapping his fingers in front of them. Hey, yo, it's me, Joseph. And he says, So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. He pulls the the wool from their eyes and he enables them to see what God has done. And through those interactions, the first trip down and now this second trip, and now him bringing them back, now they're beginning to understand who Joseph is. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. These two brothers embracing really for the first time in their adult lives, seeing each other, realizing their mother is now dead. And basically, they're all they have left. Yes, they have their other brothers. But as far as being blood brothers, it's really the two of them. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers, and he wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And in this moment, they were accepting him And no doubt they realized that the dreams that Joseph had were real. And they were by God. And as it says that uh, he kissed all of his brothers and he wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. There is something very deep going on here in this moment. And what's happening is reconciliation. It's something that's so powerful and something that so few of us ever attain when there is difficulty in the relationships of our lives. As he was kissing and weeping and kissing and weeping, the tears that Joseph was shedding and that his brothers were shedding were washing away the guilt. And it was refreshing them. And it was restoring the love that a family should have for one another. You see, we should always try to be reconciled with those To whom we are estranged whether they be in our own household in our immediate family in our extended family or even friends and neighbors you see god's people should be reconciled with one another joseph never showed any inclination through this whole scenario to get revenge on his brothers or on anyone else who had wronged him his desire was just the opposite it was to be reunited with his brothers to have unity and love with his family And in this moment, he realized that God had given him a golden and a divine opportunity to achieve reconciliation. You see, we are to make, as God's people, reconciliation and forgiveness a top priority in our lives. People do sin, and sometimes they hurt us. Sometimes we sin, and we hurt others. And whether that is done intentionally or unintentionally, the pain is still the same. Our job in such circumstances is to approach those who have offended us, not to confront them with their sin, but to offer forgiveness and reconciliation. This principle works in both directions, whether we are the ones offended or we are the ones who gave an offense. Matthew chapter 5 says this, If you bring your gift to the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift right there before the altar and go your way first to be reconciled to your brother or your sister, and then come and offer your gift before God. You see, forgiveness can be offered by one party alone, but reconciliation requires mutual effort. Joseph had forgiven his brothers for their sin long before he met them in Egypt. He had recognized that it was God's plan that he be in Egypt in order to provide food for many people, and he had no desire to avenge himself for any sins against him. He was able to forgive regardless of his brother's response. I want to say that again. He was able to forgive regardless of his brother's response. You see, that's true forgiveness. And isn't that the way the Lord has treated us? That God has forgiven us regardless of our response? In fact, some of us, you know, we come to the Lord and we hear of his forgiveness and we are converted and, and we just come and we fall down before him and we weep and we receive his forgiveness. But for others of us, we're a bit more of a project, aren't we? We have to hear it over and over and over before it breaks through the crusty darkness of our heart to penetrate it. However, Joseph was not able to be fully reconciled with his family until his brothers acknowledged their sin and repented. You see, Paul says, as far as it depends on you, seek to be at peace with all men. But if the other person or the other people aren't willing, there's nothing you and I can do about that but pray. But we can do our part before God and and forgive them before God and offer forgiveness to them. But reconciliation can't happen, the restoration of the relationship, until the the offending party has dealt with their sin and they have repented and acknowledged their sin. This is such a key and necessary and healthy element to reconciliation. We must be willing to confess any action that might have hurt another person. And guess what? You and I cannot make the other person repent, can we? We can't force reconciliation. It has to be something that comes from the other person. And if we are the one who has done the offending, then let us take note that we are the ones who need to repent and to come before the other person and ask them to forgive us and to confess our sins and our trespasses to a fellow brother or sister. James five sixteen says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold all things have become new. Now, All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you catch that? God has reconciled us to himself. You see, we are the the perpetrator. We are the offender before God. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. But God went so far in the act of salvation and the sending of the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, that God himself says, I have reconciled you to me. God has condescended and bent low to reach out to us. And all we have to do is to say, I believe and I receive. And in that process, of course, we have to repent. And as we do that, then we become saved. Our salvation is complete. We come into the family of God. And it says that He has also given us the ministry of reconciliation. Just as you and I have been saved, just as you and I have been forgiven, just as you and I have been reconciled, so should we become agents of reconciliation to bring other people to God first and foremost and to help them become reconciled to, with, and before God. But also, While we first need peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we also need peace with one another. And it's that peace, it's that love that God says, by this kind of love, the love that you have for one another as brothers and sisters, this will become the witness to the world that you are my children. And in 2 Corinthians 5.19, to finish that, he says, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. In other words, not holding it against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That is the gospel. And that's what happened with Joseph and his brothers. Genesis forty-five sixteen. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now, notice what Pharaoh says. He gets involved here. Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart and go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now, this is Pharaoh speaking to Joseph's family. Now, keep in mind the Egyptians didn't like the Hebrews. What's happening in this moment is a miracle of God that God is speaking to and through Pharaoh, offering this refuge and, this, and the riches of the land to these Hebrew people. Now you are commanded, do this. Take the carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. In other words, make haste. I'm gonna send a, a string of lemos to you and I'm gonna pick up your family and we're gonna bring them all back down here. And then he says in verse 20, do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So it's like God comes to you in the form of a person and then he says, leave your home, leave all your stuff, leave your cars, all your keepsakes, your mementos, all those boxes in your garage, leave it. I've got a better place for you. And doesn't this sound a little bit like Jesus? I've gone to prepare a place for you. You see how God is using Joseph to bring salvation and deliverance to his people, to his family? So Pharaoh stepped up, Pharaoh spoke, Pharaoh acted on Joseph's behalf. And this says volumes about Joseph's reputation and the favor that Pharaoh had for and had given to Joseph. In Pharaoh's eyes, as Pharaoh said when he appointed him, There shall be none in all the land that are as high as you. You shall be second only to me in all of the land. Remember earlier we had seen where God had spoken and he said, I am with you. And God was truly with Joseph. Now as Pharaoh is saying... On behalf of Joseph, I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to send the carts and the camels, and we're going to get all your stuff and all your people. We're going to bring them down here. We're going to find a place to put all of your people, all of your family. We're going to make them comfortable, and we're going to give them the best of all the land. We're not just going to give them a place and say, good luck. I'm going to set you all up. I want you to consider for a moment the truth of Ephesians chapter 1. Just sit back and listen to what God has done for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, According to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us and the Beloved, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Let me say that again. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Because God looks at the people, the saints, you and me, and says, I'm rich because I have you. Doesn't that blow your mind? That God considers himself rich because he has us? In his family? And he goes on to say, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. I can think of no passage that better illustrates what has happened here to and through Joseph to his family as the people are being rescued from from the famine and brought into the land of Egypt. Genesis forty-five twenty-one. then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. I mean, the blessings just keep coming. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. So there's the blessing for his brother Benjamin again. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. And so he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. If you have a different translation, it probably says, He sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. He knows these guys. He knows how they are. And he said, Look, this is all done. And he tried to tell them, God did this, not you. I don't want you on the long journey back home blaming each other and pointing fingers and saying, you know, if we hadn't done this or if you had listened to me, he said, No, 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 it's all done. It's forgiven. It's over, it's reconciled, it's behind us. And as you travel on the way, don't be troubled, don't be in turmoil, don't quarrel with one another. And this is something we need. To guard against, isn't it, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we choose not to quarrel with each other over anything. Discuss things? Yes. Quarrel and fight and bicker? No. These things are not becoming of children of God. Then they went up out of Egypt, and they came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph's still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stopped if I understand this properly, it's just like his heart went numb, like he had a palpitation, like his, he just he went, what? Because for 22 years, what has he done? He has mourned the loss of his son. Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. He thought, you guys are messing with me again. You've troubled me for all of your lives. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, And when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Finally, he believed it. Then Israel, now it calls him Israel, governed by God. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Finally, one last pleasurable thing in my life out of all these years of misery I would direct your attention for a moment over to Psalm 105 if you'd like to keep your finger here and flip over to there. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 16, is a chronicle of the history of what God did in Joseph's life. So, Psalm 105, verse 16, and he called for a famine, that is God, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters, and he himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions, to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. So I want to come back to Psalm 105.22, to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. You see, God was using the story of Joseph to teach the elders, the fathers, the patriarchs, and really all elders, all people who would be willing to be instructed what it means to trust God, what it means that God is sovereign, what it means that God takes care of his people to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. In other words, he doesn't want us to miss the lesson that God has for us. And as we roll into chapter 46, it says, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, Beersheba was a place that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had made a special place. It was a place where they had dug a well. It was a place where God had met with them and spoken to them, much like Bethel. And then God spoke to Israel here in Beth, Be- uh, Beersheba. God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. I love how God sees the inmost part of our heart. And he knew that there was turmoil and distress in Israel's heart. And as he spoke to them in the visions of the night, in a time when our defenses are down, when we're relaxed, when we're resting, God comes to him and speaks to them and says, I'm God. I'm your God. I'm the God of your Father. Do not fear. Notice what he says here. Now, remember... Jacob knew the stories, right? Remember that Abraham had gone down to Israel at one time, but it was not a good thing. And he went down there and he lied about Sarah being his wife and said she was my sister and things didn't go so well. Remember later, Isaac went down there and got into trouble with the king and did a similar kind of thing. So Jacob may have known those things. I believe he knew them. And he may have been going, well, you know, God... My family's not had a very good track record in Egypt. And God now speaking to him saying, now, I've got something I'm going to do. In fact, all the way back in Genesis 15, when God spoke to Abraham, he said that his descendants would be strangers in a land that is not theirs and that they will serve them and they will be afflicted there for 400 years. I believe Jacob knew this. But he didn't know what these things meant. So God spoke to Jacob in his vision and gave him four divine reasons why Jacob or Israel should trust him. The first one is, he says, do not be afraid for I will make you there into a great nation. It was the promise that God had originally given to Abraham, but now he's making it a little clearer as to what and to how. I'm going to do it in Egypt not in Canaan, not in the place that you thought I was going to do it. I'm going to take you and your whole family down to Egypt. Second, he says, do not fear because I myself will go down with you. I'll be with you the whole time, Jacob. You're not doing this alone. So God bringing him comfort, saying that I will be with you. Third, he says, do not fear I will also bring you up again, meaning your family, your people. I will bring you back. I will restore you. I will surely bring you up would be a more emphatic understanding of the language. And then fourth, do not be afraid because Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. In other words, he's reminding him, your beloved son who's been taken from you for all these years will be the one to sit with you in your death, And he will put his hand over your eyes and close your eyes. Your son will be the one who receives the blessing. And so as he learned of these things, as he listened to the voice of God, he arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father to Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock, their goods, which they had acquired in the land, and they went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants, his sons and his sons sons and his daughters and his son's daughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt now here's something we need to understand about why God is taking them all to Egypt if this family did not go into Egypt then they would assimilate among the pagan tribes of Canaan and would cease to become a distinctive people God had to put them in a place where they could grow and remain a distinctive nation We're going to find out in a few minutes exactly where Joseph and Pharaoh would place them. Another person wrote this, I will make of you a great nation there, God told Israel, as he revealed his purposes. Because of the exclusive segregated nature of Egyptian life, Israel's descendants could grow as large and distinct as a nation there. Egypt became like a mother's womb to Israel as a nation where they grew from something from something small to something large. So God was going to take them out to the land of Goshen and the Hebrews couldn't be with the Egyptians. So God gave them this lush little uh, nine or, or, nine or eight hundred square mile uh, area, this plot of land for them to grow into. And then we find beginning in verse 8 of chapter 46, the names of all of the people of Israel... Jacob and his sons, and they list them all out there, and then it gives the numbers. And as you read through this, you come to the place where it says, um, verse 26, And all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who went to Egypt, were 70 so saying there were 66 who traveled down, then there was Joseph and his family, which when you add, came up to 70. But then we find, just a little bit later, in case you're one of these people who chases down discrepancies in the Bible, in Stephen's um, address in Acts chapter 7, he also retells the story of God's faithfulness in the life of uh, Jacob and Joseph. And in Acts 7.13, he says, And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. So people look at this and they say, Why does it say 75 in Acts 7.14? And why does it say 70 in Genesis 46? 27, and I don't want to spend a long time on this, I've got a long list of rebuttals to this, but in essence, to summarize it for you, in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there was a difference, and the difference was <clears throat> that in the Septuagint, they included the extended family of Joseph, and that if you add them in with Joseph's two sons, and then his son's sons, it actually totals up to 75, And the explanation is that Stephen was quoting from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew text. So for what that's worth, uh, there's the understanding. And if you'd like to go into that further, I can give you much more to look at. But like many works of God, Israel had a slow beginning. From the time God called Abraham, it took at least 25 years to add one son who was Isaac. It took Isaac 60 years to add another son uh, of Israel, and that was Jacob. And it took another 50 or 60 years for Jacob to add 12 sons and one daughter. Now remember, God had promised to Abraham that his descendants would be as the sand of the sea, or the sand of the seashore, the stars in the sky. But in 430 years, Israel would leave Egypt with 600,000 men. And when you number the women and the children, it would be close to 2 million people as the exodus occurred. It took this family 215 years to grow from 1 to 70, but it took another 430 years. They grew grew to 2 million or more. Why do I share that? Because when God says he's going to do something, he will do it, but he will do it in his time in his way. And we can never think that God has been unfaithful because things don't happen according to our plan or the way we think it should happen. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen and they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. So now we see there there had been this reunion with his brothers and with his brother Benjamin. And now for the first time with his father. And I imagine that there was the same bitter weeping and these tears of joy and tears of sorrow. For All of these years that he had been estranged from his father, not only for Joseph, because he knew what his father had gone through and how his brothers had deceived him, but also for Israel himself, because he thought for the last 22 plus years that his son was dead, and now his son has been given back to him. It is such a gift from God. And so they had a good cry together. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face. I, I'm okay now. I've, I can stop grieving. I, I, you're, you're here. You're in front of me. And then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. For their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be, so he's giving them counsel now of how to conduct themselves when Pharaoh questions them. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, we're not going to go into 47, but as you get into the first few verses of 47, this all plays out where uh, he says that, you know, what the Egyptians regard as cows, not sheep. So don't even tell them about your sheep. Tell them about your cows. And then Pharaoh will actually take them and make them uh, the, the, the curators for his own flock out in that area. So he, even there, they get a boost. They get a promotion because of Jacob. So here, Jacob's dream being fulfilled. Jacob providing, God sent me ahead of you. To provide for you. And I'd like to to close it with this verse from Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For 22 plus years, Joseph wondered God, what are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? Why is it taking so long? And and yet he believed God. He trusted God. But he was perplexed about the timeline and the methods that God was taking with him. But now as we come to this point here, and and here through through chapter 50 as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, God makes it all plain to them. And yet we know if if you know anything of the story as you read ahead and you go ahead into Exodus chapter 1 and you begin to read, then the pharaohs die off and the changing of the guard takes place and then there's not such a favorable thing that happens and the children of Israel grow over the course of those 400 or 430 years. And God begins to do something different and he brings them to a place that they grow, but now they become uncomfortable and the comfortable time that God gave them there while they grew and became the nation that he wanted them to be, had come to an end. And we see the same thing, this pattern repeated over and over in the Scriptures, that sometimes God brings us to a place that we're uncomfortable, where we have to cry out to God and say, God, what's next for me? What do I do? Where do I go from here? God, what's happening? And God answers, and God moves, and God provides, and God guides. And these are all things that God did in and through the life of Joseph, and Jacob, and all of the family. So two of the key things that were said to us today, God sent me before you. Remember, Joseph said to his brothers, you didn't send me here. He said, it was God, it wasn't you that sent me here. And we need to understand, and this has been a theme, right, Of these last number of weeks as we've been going through this, that God is in control. Now we can know that truth, but we need to understand it. We need to embrace it. And as things happen in our lives, we need to sit down before God and we need to say, Lord, I know you're in control. I don't understand it. But God, I'm going to trust you. Help me to trust you through this. Help me to follow you through this. I I don't know the left from the right. I don't know the end from the beginning. But you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. I will trust you. Even though I don't know what's happening. Remember what Job said in his distress? He said, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You see, that's the place that God wants every child of God to get to. Where we come to a place of abandon. Where we say those words to God. And we let go of of our illusion of control because that's all it is all of us have control issues to one degree or another but god wants us to realize he's the only one who truly has control and as we entrust our ourselves into the hands of our faithful creator we will begin to realize that it was god not you not me that not those who did things to us but it was god and god has a plan Because you see, for God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Do you love him? And do you trust him? Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us. And Lord, maybe some of us this morning need to just sort of cast down our burdens before you and let go of all of the things that we're struggling with and that we're control, trying to control and that we're wrestling with. And Lord, maybe, maybe we just realize that you're sovereign. You're supreme. That no matter what happens in elections and with coronavirus and the affairs of our lives and our finances and our cars and our houses and our kids, God, you're in control. And Lord, even if, if some of us have been praying for people for years, people who maybe we thought once knew you and they walked away, or maybe people we just long to see them get saved before they pass from this earth. God, we cry out to you this morning. God, please be merciful to us as sinners. Be merciful to those people in, in our hearts and minds whom we love and whom we ache for. And we, love, we, we, we long to see them come to Christ. And Lord, for those things that we don't have answers for, just like you told your servant Jacob as he went down, he said, You said, I'm with you. And so, Lord, let that be enough for us. Even if we never get answers to our most perplexing questions on this side of heaven, may your presence be enough for us. We love you, Lord. We bless you. We turn our hearts toward you this morning. And for any Lord who are listening, who have never believed in or trusted in our Lord Jesus Christ, may this be the moment for them where they turn their heart to you and they become reconciled. And they, they say yes to you, Lord. And they stop fighting. They stop kicking against the goads. And they say, okay, Lord, I'm here. Take my life and let it be used for your glory. Lord, things we don't understand. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.